0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello there. I'm David Brenner, the Vice Chancellor of Health Sciences, and it's my pleasure to moderate today's health talk. I can't think of a um, a more um, exciting, interesting topic than um, today's topic, which is entitled um, parents, kids, and COVID, what you need to know. Since most um, schools are opening, or already opened in San Diego, everyone is thinking about how the pandemic affects our children and how we will deal with um, schools and children's normal needs for interactions going forward. And particularly, as of yesterday and today, probably the hottest topic in the country is vaccinations for children. So we are really lucky to have this um, group of amazing experts um, to educate us. We have um, five experts in different aspects of pediatrics, Dr. Mark Sawyer, Dr. Kellen um, Tontisira, Dr. Stephen Spector, Dr. Um, Shin Sun, and Dr. Um, Carrie Butel. Um, as you probably know, um, the practice of pediatrics um, occurs at both um, UC San Diego um, Health, as well as at um, our affiliated um, Rady Children's Hospital. And uh, between us, we see a large number of um, patients and have a large experience, um, and in particular about um, children with COVID and vaccinations. I also want to thank um, Dr. Gabby Haddad, who is the department chairman of pediatrics and who has really um, provided the leadership to put together this group, and as well as many research and clinical programs in pediatrics. So we'll start with Dr. Mark Sawyer, He's professor in the Department of Pediatrics here at UC San Diego School of Medicine. And he is also a temporary voting member for the FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Board. So he will teach us about the status of vaccination in California and in the nation. Dr. Sawyer.
1: Good afternoon, it's great to join you. I agree with Dr. Brenner, this is a quite timely topic. I'm gonna kick things off today with some general comments and introductory uh, in, uh, uh, introduction of issues that are relevant to consideration of vaccines for children with the new COVID vaccines. So we hear this question a lot, do kids really need COVID vaccines? I'm sure you're all aware that children in general are less severely affected by COVID and as an infection, and that leads some to question the need for vaccine. But I've included in this slide some of the statistics around COVID in children in the United States. We have had over 4 million cases, 17,000 hospitalization, which compares to or is maybe slightly higher than what we see typically with influenza. We've had over 500 deaths in the United States from COVID, which is more than we see with influenza. And most importantly, perhaps, children play an important role in the transmission of COVID to their family members and to others. So I think the arguments are pretty compelling that children do need vaccine. And fortunately we're on the cusp of vaccine being available to us. And you'll hear more about the details of that shortly. The graph on the right simply shows the rate of COVID disease in children under four in the yellow line and in five to 11 year olds. And it's following the same peaks and valleys as we're seeing in the general adult population. I do wanna spend a minute talking about vaccine effectiveness as a, as a statistic, because you hear that discussed a lot, vaccine effectiveness. And there's all kinds of different versions of what vaccine effectiveness might mean. So we start on the left-hand side of this, this figure with a SARS-CoV-2 virus, the best vaccine would be one that prevents all infection. So you don't get infected, you don't get symptoms, nothing happens. The next best vaccine would be one that keeps you from getting infected, but it may or may not keep you from transmitting the infection to others. So that's a separate measure of effectiveness. It would be great if these vaccines prevent transmission, even if you get infected, you don't have symptoms, but you may, but you stop transmission. And then as we move off to the right, we just escalate the outcome. You could have a vaccine that doesn't prevent symptoms, but keeps you from getting sick enough to go to the doctor. You can have a vaccine that prevents you from getting put in the hospital. You can have a vaccine that keeps you out of intensive care and ultimately dying of COVID. And the rate of effectiveness changes with each of those outcomes going up as you go from left to right. So this is a very important thing to keep in mind, especially with the Delta variant that's circulating now, that vaccines remain effective at keeping you out of the hospital and dying of COVID, even though we are seeing some decrease in immune protection from having symptoms or even getting sick enough to go see the doctor. So you should keep this concept in mind as you're reading about vaccine effectiveness. So what are the goals and challenges in considering COVID vaccine in children? Of course, we want to prevent severe illness leading to hospitalization and death. We're worried about some of the long-term effects of COVID in children just are we, as we are in adults. We need to interrupt the transmission within schools and within to family members. And you know, from a parent's point of view, perhaps most importantly, we want kids to get back to their normal activities in school and their sports and other things out of school. It's a very important thing though, that we be careful about moving forward too rapidly in children. So. As with any vaccine, we're always considering the risks and the benefits of a vaccine. We're weighing the the outcomes that we just talked about versus any side effects from the vaccine. In adults, it's pretty straightforward, particularly in elderly adults. The risk of the infection is so great that there's really not much question that we can tolerate some side effects in the vaccine. But the risk for children is different. The risk of outcome of, in, of infection is not as severe. So we have to be extra careful as we consider vaccines for children. So we, the, the, the risk benefit balance is different in adults and children. And that is among the reasons it's taking so long for us to get a vaccine for children. The other thing I wanna introduce is the vaccine approval process. There are two main steps to that. And you've heard a lot about this in the news in just the last few days the first is the fda the food and drug administration which has an advisory committee listed there the role of fda is to approve vaccines based on safety and effectiveness and it's largely based on data that the manufacturer submits to fda so fda can't do anything until the manufacturer submits their information. So one of the delays sometimes in the rollout of a new vaccine is the company takes longer than we would like to actually submit the data. But once the data is submitted to FDA, it's reviewed, the advisory committee often meets and and gives their input, and then the FDA makes a decision. And we are waiting for that very step right here today on the question of booster doses that has been in the media and was discussed last Friday by the advisory committee. The next major step is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which has its own advisory committee called the ACIP. It's the job of CDC to take a vaccine that's approved by FDA and tell us who should get it and when they should get it and what the priorities should be. They're also responsible for vaccine distribution and oversight of distribution. So it's a two-step process. In the question of boosters that, we, that I just mentioned, the CDC is meeting Wednesday and Thursday of this week to come up with the final recommendations for the use of booster doses. And we'll see this same two-step process when vaccines come available for children. How do we know vaccines are safe? And how do we know they're safe for children? Well, we know a lot about vaccines in children in general and the immune response based on decades of experience. We have clinical trials uh, in, a, in younger populations with different doses and you'll hear more detail about that. I think the most important thing to be aware of is that there is an extensive post-marketing surveillance or real world experience that we learn from as vaccines are used in the community. And it surprised me a little when preparing for this that we have given over 5 billion COVID doses around the world. So if there was a strange or unusual, extremely rare side effect, we would know about that by now. And I've listed here some of the systems that are in place and the acronyms are not that important, but let me just mention two of them. VAIR is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System up at the top. This is a system that allows anybody, a patient, a family member, a doctor, to report what they think might be a side effect of a vaccine and then the CDC and the FDA investigate to see if that really is a true association. And one way they investigate is with what's called the BSD, the Vaccine Safety Data Link. This is a group of managed care groups that have electronic health records. They have something like 10 million people uh, that they can uh, study to say after they got a COVID vaccine, what happened? And that's the best scientific way to determine whether vaccines are safe. And these systems are in place. They're monitoring vaccine side effects every day. And we're going to rely on those to tell us whether vaccines are safe. Let me wrap up by saying here's where we are with COVID vaccines in San Diego. In the 12 to 17-year-old population, we have actually managed to immunize almost 70% of that adolescent population, which is great news. We have some work to do. Among the things we need to keep working on is there are some disparities across different regions of San Diego, as we've seen in adults, and there are disparities by race and ethnic groups. So we still have work to do, but we're making great progress with the rollout of vaccines. And finally, a lot of the questions that have come in so far have to do with, well, how do we get back to school, particularly in the setting of the Delta variant? I do wanna make sure everyone's clear that pediatricians and the uh, national organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics supports having kids get back to school. We are seeing gaps in education. We're seeing inequities in education. School is very important for socialization and emotional skill development of kids. And we're unfortunately seeing rising mental health disorders in children as a result of the COVID pandemic. What can you do to protect your kids in school while getting them vaccinated for sure when that becomes available, but don't forget all the other steps, masking, schools have increased ventilation. We need good hand washing. We need you to not send your kids to school when they're sick and social distancing to the extent that's possible. And you put all that together, I think it is safe for kids to get back to school. With that, I'm gonna turn it back to Dr. Brenner and our other speakers.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. Um, That set the tone perfectly. Um, So next, we're going to have Dr. Kellen um, Tantusirat. He is the Chief of um, um, the Division of Pediatric Respiratory Medicine of Pulmonology at UC San Diego Health, as well as at Rady Children's Hospital. And he will discuss COVID pulmonary disease
2: in children. Thank you, Dr. Brenner. I appreciate the introduction. um, And I'm pleased to speak with you today about how COVID impacts the lung in children. Um, As uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Sawyer mentioned, um, we've recently seen this impact of the Delta virus, particularly in pediatrics, and in fact, uh, most recent statistics from the CDC actually suggest that Some pediatric age groups are actually leading in terms of recent incident cases. And that's also been reflected in terms of the kids who are getting sick. We've actually seen a spike in emergency room visits as well. And so clearly making clinical studies of uh, COVID-19 paramount uh, in in the current day and age. Um, So why would we want to study SARS-CoV-2 as it affects the lungs? Well, I think that there are at least obviously multiple, but at least two predominant reasons. And the first is is that we know that respiratory transmission is actually the prominent uh, predominant way that uh, SARS-CoV-2 gets transmitted from individual to individual. And I've shown that on the left, it's either via airborne uh, or droplets um, uh, from person to person, as well as uh, somebody who is infected can actually cough onto the contaminated surfaces whereby other individuals can make contact with that and then get infected. The other thing is that um, SARS-CoV-2, actually the lung is a primary target organ and the airway epithelial cells, which are the the surface cells of the lung, are primary targets in that they all express this ACE2 receptor uh, to which uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, uh, binds uh, to create uh, that downstream effects. So, I would be remiss to mention that uh, there are clearly extra-pulmonary manifestations as well as pulmonary manifestations of COVID. Um, And amongst those in kids, uh, the things that we most commonly see are that about 15 to 40% of kids actually remain asymptomatic, which actually does mean that the majority of kids do get some symptoms. The most prominent non-pulmonary symptoms include uh, effects on the gastrointestinal system. And then in the sicker kids, we always worry about the multisystemic um, Miss c type of presentations in those kids. Having said that, the most common overall presentations for COVID are seen on the right-hand side here, and that uh, most commonly it's either non-specific in terms of fever or cough, which is present in about 50% of individuals. Now, while shortness of breath itself is not the most common manifestation, for certainly it, for the kids that present to the hospital, it is a very common manifestation. It's seen in about 40% of individuals. And in fact, locally at Rady Children's Hospital, of the individuals who presented, um, uh, who were hospitalized with COVID, um, approximately 33% of those presented with respiratory symptoms, and about half of the individuals that wound up in the intensive care unit also had uh, respiratory symptomatology as their initial presentation. So I mentioned that COVID is a multi-systemic uh, type of disease. And indeed, you can see that for both acute uh, um, manifestations as well as post-acute or chronic manifestations, uh, COVID can certainly affect many systems within kids. From a respiratory perspective, what we worry about the most acutely is pneumonia and the possibility of hypoxemic respiratory failure or acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. From a long-term perspective, we have seen a large incidence of of kids with persistent symptomatology, including shortness of breath that lasts for months after the initial infection, um, whereas kids, uh, even with kids that did not have any underlying lung disease. So what do this, does this look like clinically? Well, I thought that I'd give you a, a, a overview based on lung radiology. And on the left-hand side, you see perfectly normal lungs. And the perfectly normal characterization of the lungs is we have the white blood vessels and then everything else is black, and that is air on these x-rays. As you get more uh, acute, you see that the vast majority of hospitalized kids, including 50% of children that are totally asymptomatic, but test positive for COVID, actually do have lung abnormalities, the so-called ground glass abnormalities that you see here, where you see the haziness, this whitish gray haziness that affects the lungs in place of the nice um, black Normal lung tissue. And as you get sicker, uh, that haziness and the ground glass opacification can progress onto focal consolidation or pneumonia you can, that you can see here. And then, frankly, into this ARDS or the hypoxemic respiratory failure, where basically the, m- the vast majority of your lung turns from aerated tissue into non aerated tissue that is replaced, uh, as you can see um, on this CT scan. The incidence overall uh, is about 30% of intensive care admissions. And overall, this results in about a 5% mortality rate for all ICU admissions for COVID in children. So histologically, what would this look like? Again, I'll take you through a normal slide. This is what your normal lung looks like under a under a microscope. And even those with very mild abnormalities, uh, this ground glass opacification that present really with no respiratory symptoms whatsoever, actually you can see some distortions in the lung architecture here, as well as fluid filling in some of these alveolar spaces. Another less common presentation is those of pulmonary embolism or blood clot within the lungs themselves. And then that child that I showed you, the one-year-old with ARDS, unfortunately, Um, This is post-mortem examinations, and you can see classic feature of ARDS with marked distortion overall of the lung parenchyma and with demonstration of the COVID virus actually within the lungs themselves. In addition to that, even individuals that really have no symptomatology, um, you can see that COVID is demonstrated within those lungs despite no respiratory symptomatology. Now, I mentioned that there are both acute as well as post acute sequelae, and our group at UCSD is actually um, conducting a study in conjunction with the NIH uh, Recover um, program as, as far as post acute sequelae of SARS CoV 2. And I. Uh, listed for you just the respiratory sequelae that we have seen, and you can see that it's relatively common in terms of all the individuals who have been followed at UCSD and with our collaborators up at UCSF to see respiratory sequelae symptoms, meaning far greater than a month later, you still have significant dyspnea, shortness of breath, coughing, or wheezing that was not pre existing I will point out to you that one concern that we've had is that uh, this incidence for both acute COVID as well as these sequelae symptoms is markedly enriched in individuals of uh, Hispanic or Latino ancestry. So while we know a lot, and I know that there will be a lot of questions today, there remain a lot of questions that we are trying to seek to answer in terms of pulmonary manifestations of SARS-CoV-2. Included amongst these is. What are these subclinical lung abnormalities? As I mentioned, 15% of children have GTOs even when they're uh, asymptomatic. What is the natural history of all these lung lung abnormalities and respiratory symptomatology in terms of chronic sequelae? Are there any novel therapies on the horizon? And why is so much of COVID, including specifically related to respiratory symptomatology, increased in disparate communities? And having thrown those questions your way, I will turn this back over to Dr. Brenner and the rest of the presenting panel. Thank you. So thank you so much. That was was incredibly um, helpful,
0: and it really um, correlates what other people are saying. So I am now going to turn this over um, to um, Dr. Spector. Um, Dr. Spector is chief of our um, Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Um, He has also run several of the critical... um, Um, clinical trials on um, vaccinations um, for COVID-19, both in um, adults and in children. So he will really give us insights into what to expect for um, vaccinations and results of clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Spector.
3: Thank you, Dr. Brenner. And uh, so when will COVID-19 vaccines be available for children less than 12 years of age? Well, as you heard earlier, uh, what is clear is that we We need to have vaccines for young children. And I won't go into the details that Dr. Sawyer went into, but I just want to talk about on a population basis why it is so important. If you think that there are 331 million people in the US, and we're going to need, based on what we have seen with the Delta variant, that 80 to 90 percent of the population will be needed to achieve herd immunity, so they're going to need to be protected. Children who are less than 12 years of age comprise over 50 million of our population. So if we're going to achieve herd immunity, we need to be able to immunize children who are less than 12 years of age. Now you've also heard and seen that the Uh, frequency of infection in children is going up, particularly as the Delta variant has increased. And what is quite uh, interesting and important to note is that since March of 2020, children have comprised 16% of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. However, for the week from September 2nd to September 9th, this year, children comprise 29% of the cases of COVID-19. And to put that into perspective here in San Diego, what you can see is with the number of cases of children who are zero to 11 years, you can see in fact that there's been a marked increase with the Delta variant and as children have started going back to school and the number of cases in children are now comparable to that are. Well, of those in San Diego County who are older than 60 years and uh, for uh, adolescents between 12 and 19 years. Fortunately, uh, serious infections and hospitalizations and death remain low in children. As you know, there are currently three COVID-19 vaccines that are approved within the US either through an EUA in the case of Pfizer, actually been licensed. Um, Two are messenger RNA vaccines, and one is a non-replicating viral vector, the J&J Janssen vaccine. As of now, the Pfizer vaccine is approved uh, either through EUA or a licensure for those who are greater than or equal 12 years of age. The Moderna vaccine has an EUA for those that are greater than 18 years of age. They have an application in uh, to have licensure of their vaccine for over 18 years of age. And they also have pending for those that are greater than or equal to 12 years, uh, an EUA for that group as well that we should hear about in the next few weeks. Uh, The J&J vaccine is going to be studied Uh, in children as well, but is not as far along as Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. So why are COVID-19 vaccines taking so much longer in children? Well, as you heard from Dr. Sawyer, risk benefit is one issue, but in actuality, vaccines are historically tested first in adults and uh, youth who are older than 18 years of age. But importantly, children are not little adults, and you have to come up with what is the right dose because the dose of the vaccine necessary may be lower in children than that in adults. Additionally, their re- immune response may differ in children, and also the adverse effects may be different. Importantly, if we know the efficacy in adults as we do with the COVID-19 vaccine, this can expedite the approval in children because in the COVID-19 studies, what we are now looking at is, is the immune response that we're seeing in children comparable to that, that is seen in uh, adolescents and in adults? And also, is this vaccine safe? So if we can demonstrate immunogenicity and safety, we can then have a licensed vaccine for children, so as you heard yesterday, I'm sure on the news and saw on the front page of the San Diego Union this morning, uh, the Pfizer vaccine uh, seems to meet the criteria that we would like for a vaccine in children for from five to eleven years of age. Of interest, the children received a 10 microgram dose. 21 days apart, which is one third of the dose of that that's given to adolescents and adults. They enrolled over 2,000 study participants in that study that were randomized two to one to receive the vaccine or to receive placebo, and found that the immune response was comparable to that seen in adolescents and adults, and the ad- adverse effects were similar as seen also with adolescents and adults. They are also studying in children two months to five years of age, a 30, uh, sorry, a three microgram dose, which is one tenth of the dose that they have uh, used in adults. And they're expecting to apply for EUA for their five to 11 years by the end of this month or the beginning of October. Uh, for an EUA, two years to five years, sometime at the end of October or the middle of November. And for those that are six months to less than two years, uh, sometime in late November or December. As far as the uh, Moderna vaccine, they are also studying uh, children who are six months to less than 12 years of age. This is a study uh, that we are doing at Rady Children's Hospital. And uh, this study has already enrolled over 4,000 study participants between six years and less than 12 years. They are receiving a 50 microgram dose, which is half the dosage uh, that has been given to adolescents and adults. And again, as you may know, the Moderna vaccine is given 28 days apart. The end of the second dose should be completed by uh, this Saturday. And the expectation is there'll be an EUA application to the FDA by the middle of November. They're also planning on starting their study on two years to less than six years and six months to less than two years of age in the middle of October. And this is also a study that we will be doing uh, at Rady Children's Hospital. So where are we? What is the estimated timeline for the approval of COVID-19 vaccines for children less than 12 years of age. Well, the expectation then is for children between five and less than 12 years of age, that um, again, the EUA for Pfizer should go to the FDA sometime by the end of this month or October. And one would anticipate that sometime by the end of October, the beginning of November, that there will be an EUA for the Pfizer vaccine for children five years to less than 12 years. For children two years to less than five years. Um, the expectation is that that will take about a month longer. And by the time we have uh, an EUA application that would be approved by the FDA, I would anticipate that that would be uh, more in December. Um, and towards the end of of this year that we would have an EUA for children two years to less than five years. For children that are six months to less than two years, it'll take a longer period of time. My expectation is that the application will not go to the FDA until uh, late in December, and likely it will be sometime in the first quarter of 2022 that we will have a licensed vaccine for those children six months to less than two years, And that will cover all the children who are less than 12 years of age. So I will stop here. I'd be glad to answer any questions later. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Brenner.
4: Hello there. I was told that um, Dr. Brenner is having issue uh, with his Um, Sharing So uh, I'm just gonna uh, go on with my presentation. So I'm Xing Son, I'm a professor in pediatrics in the division of pediatric respiratory medicine. Uh, My team studies uh, pediatric lung disease mechanisms. And in the next few minutes, I hope to tell you about uh, what we know and uh, how we uh, discover COVID-19 viral infection in the young lungs of infant and children. So on the background slide here, what you're seeing is a human lung section uh, with magenta staining the cells uh, that are infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So let me just quickly remind you um, that uh, SARS-CoV-2 stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. Um, as Dr. Tantissera mentioned, that the lung is then a primary site of the SARS-CoV-2 infection. So um, the picture on this slide here is a mouse lung stained with the airway in magenta that conducts the air um, from outside environment um, and deliver the air into your gas exchange unit, uh, standing in green here. So in an average adult human being, um, you and me, we have uh, 6 million on average of gas exchange units in our lung. And this amounts to about a thousand square footage of gas exchange surface area. And that's about half of a tennis court when you think about that, or packaged in our chest And one piece of a fact is that uh, 95% uh, of the surface area is actually built after birth, so in children it's an active evolving building uh, organ that is functioning as our gas exchange uh, tissue. So on this slide here. it depicts the um, particular cell layer that's in different parts of the lung that faces the outside environment, and that's the epithelial cell layer that uh, Dr. Tantissera also mentioned, uh, that forms the barrier that protects the rest of our body uh, away from the pathogens that come from the inhaled um, air. So uh, I think about the SARS-CoV-2 infection as in three steps. Um, The first step is the entrance of the pathogen, and uh, the cells facing it are those epithelial cells. Um, There will be an infection process um, interaction with the pathogen and the cells. And following that, um, your body um, hopefully mounts the immune response, and that then leads to the virus clearance. Um, And after the viral clearance, the next step would be the repair of the damage in your lung. So uh, the activation of the good stem cells uh, to repair the lost cell types. So the next uh, three slides, I hope to tell you how the young lung behaves uh, in comparison to the adult lung in those three steps. So the first step, as I said, is infection. So... um, the, the virus uh, infects the cells, they need actually receptors um, for the virus on the cell surface. So to address um, the expression of those receptors for virus on different cell types, uh, what we use is a, uh, a advanced technique called single-cell RNA sequencing um, to address uh, in the human lung cell types how many uh, of these receptors are expressing what cell types. So in this map here, which looks like impressionist painting, each dot here represents a single cell. And when uh, a cell expresses similar genes, uh, these uh, dots will, will congregate um, in, into a, a similar cell type. So, using this, we were able to interrogate uh, for any genes that uh, are expressed in, in our tissue, how much uh, are they expressed and where are they expressed. So, Dr. Tantasera mentioned ACE2 is one of the key receptors for SARS CoV 2. There is another uh, uh, gene that encodes um, a protease uh, called TMPRSS2 that is also essential for virus entry into the cell. On the right-hand side here is a map where each of the black dots is, uh, is detection of the gene expression. On um, the x-axis uh, is uh, a list of cell types. So you can see for both of these uh, two genes, the black dots are more enriched on the left-hand side, and these are the epithelial cell types that I mentioned earlier that are forming the barrier um, to protect our lung away from the the, um, outside environment. So these uh, tend to be also the cells that express higher level of the receptor compared to the other cell types. So then we focused on these cells and look at these two receptor gene expression and compare their gene expression level in the adults versus pediatric lungs. As you can see here, so um, the, for both of these genes, the expression of these uh, genes that are important for viral entry is expressed at a lower level in the pediatric lungs compared to the adults. So we think this might contribute to why there is uh, a lower infection rate um, in the um, pediatric population is because the young lungs express fewer of those SARS-CoV-2 entry proteins. So that's good news for the young lung in the steps of infection. So the next step is immune response. So shown on this slide here is a section of a mouse lung infected with another respiratory virus, uh, the influenza virus and stained in uh, green here are your immune cells. So we can see here that there is a huge amount of immune cells that's recruited into your lung upon the damage by the virus um, to try to clear the virus. So here, as as I mentioned earlier, the the young lung uh, is still building after birth. Um, so the young lungs have a naive immune system, um, so which then leads to a poorer defense against pathogens compared to the adult. So that's bad news. So the good news is that there are ways to educate the immune system. As the uh, prior speakers all talked about, vaccine is one of the, the ways to educate your immune cell system to boost uh, these specific immune cells that would be in action to clear the virus. So the next step um, is repair the lung um, after the virus has been cleared. Um, so shown here again is a mouse uh, lung section showing that these pink cells now are coming in into this damaged blue region to repair uh, the damage. Um, so there are two kinds of repair. Um, there is the good repair, which is uh, shown in those green cells here, which are where the stem cells have been activated to transition to gas exchange cells. There's also bad repair where the stem cells have transitioned to scarring tissue, shown in orange here. So uh, we want to obviously boost good repair and minimize the bad repair. And the good news here is that young lungs have more active stem cells. That is uh, very good for the good repair compared to the adult lungs. So, to just summarizing uh, the comparisons here, um, for the young lungs, uh, they are better at, uh, uh, at conducting less of infection because they are expressing less of the receptors. They are also um, uh, better at uh, repair because they have good stem cells. Um, for the immune uh, response part, it's something that we can do. Uh, we can we can work, on uh, we can uh, boost the immune response uh, through vaccination. So hopefully that's uh, some information that will be helpful for you and we continue to address the question using our research uh, approaches. And with that I'd like to turn over back to um, Dr. Brenner and the next speaker.
0: All right, thank you so much. Um, I-, I apologize to, 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 to Dr. Sun. Um, as you realize from hearing her speak, she is a um, developmental biologist who is a um, world expert on, um, on the development of, um, of the lung. And our, our final speaker um, is Dr. Carrie Ambutel. She is both um, in pediatrics and psychiatry. She's director of the Center for Healthy Eating and Activity Research. And she's going to talk about the psychological and behavioral impact of the pandemic on children. Carrie.
5: Hi, everyone. And thanks for inviting me. Um, I just thought I'd start off by talking a little bit about how the pandemic has affected children's lives. So if you think about it, um, there are a number of different things that happen during the pandemic. So we had school closures, online education, lack of in-person social interaction, isolation, loss of supplemental meals at school. Family stress, parent telecommuting, increased exposure to substance use and maltreatment in the home. On the positive side, there's increased parental contact with children and opportunities for more involvement in play, decreased physical activity, increased ability to overeat because families were stockpiling packaged foods, increased risk of cyberbullying, screen time, and finally there's all the mental health issues that come along with fear and worry, grief related to loss of loved ones. Um, substance use, cancellation of youth sports, and closures of playgrounds. So this is now called the psychosocial wave of COVID-19. So COVID-19 and the pandemic had profound impacts on family life. So parents play a crucial role in providing stability. During this time, they had to balance work and child care responsibilities, provide home education to children who are online schooling, manage infection control, and also provide emotional and psychological support for their children. Many families had financial stress, um, abuse, and substance abuse effects on the family were exacerbated, and some families had more time for play and other activities together. Um, I used to think, I don't know who has all that time, but somehow people made it. So online learning affects child's mental health in a number of different ways. Due to disrupted routines, stress related to online learning, decreased access to mental health services, lack of identification, report and support for use without abuse and maltreatment, missed free and reduced price lunches, challenges learning, especially for kids with pre-existing learning disorders, lack of social connection with youth, and in particular challenges for older children who are trying to form more complex relationships and have higher stake academic outcomes. So in one survey of over 2,000 parents showed that older children in remote schooling had more mental health difficulties than those who were in person, and Black and Hispanic children as those with lower income in remote schooling also had greater impairments in mental health. So compared to parents of children receiving in-person, parents of children receiving online schooling reported decreased physical activity and time spent out time, decreased in-person time with friends, and worsened mental health or emotional um, conditions. They also had job stability concerns, child care challenges, conflict between working and providing child care, emotional distress, and difficulty sleeping. For depression and anxiety, about a third of U.S. parents reported that their child was more sad, depressed, or lonely since the pandemic. There was an increase in depressive symptoms and suicidal thoughts more than before the pandemic in data reported in China. Another study showed that over 8,000, through 8,000 adolescents, 43% had depression and 37% anxiety. And parents report things like their child's had difficulty concentrating, they were irritable, they were bored, they were worried, and they also had anxiety. Um, in terms of body weight, I, again, my team and I study weight loss, overeating, and binge eating in youth, so we were especially interested in this. And on the left-hand side, you'll see the average change in body weight from pre- to post-pandemic for different age groups, 5 to 11, 12 to 15 in the middle, and 16 to 17 on the right. On the right-hand side, you'll also see the percent of youth who meet the criteria for overweight or obesity, again, by the same age groups. The blue bars are pre-pandemic, so March 2019 to January 2020, And the green bars are March 2020 to January 2021. And as you can see, there's an average change in body weight pre to post pandemic, pretty significant ones for the younger ones, the 5 to 11 and the 12 to 15, whereas 16 to 17 were, I guess, somewhat protected. The percent of youth who have overweight or obesity in 5 to 11 rose from 36 to almost 46% during that time. Twelve to fifteen-year-olds again were hit from thirty-eight to forty-four percent, but again it relatively stabilized in six to seventeen-year-old. In substance use, we have some positive and negative effects. In terms, uh, in one study with e-cigarette users, about sixty-two thirds reported that they reduced their use. Another study with 16 to 18 year olds after social distancing was instituted, we saw decreases in binge eating. This is the kids reporting decreases in binge eating, decreases use of marijuana and vaping. Um, A recent publication out of UCSD on the ABCD study, which is 21 sites and over 7,000 youth. um, They found that fewer youth were using alcohol and more youth were using nicotine or misusing prescription drugs possibly due to access. So what have we seen in terms of mental health visits to the ER? There's been a national increase in the proportion of visits to the ER for mental health reasons since March 2020. Here at Rady Children's, um, we had from July to mid-September of 2020, we had 576 visits for behavioral health, i.e. psychiatric emergency visits. And that number went to 702 in the same amount of time in 2021. This represents a 30% increase from 2020. Um, Brady Children's also has a medical behavioral unit, which is a unit specifically for patients with psychiatric disorders, and um, medical comorbid disorders. So um, here you will see the the left-hand side is 2020, and you can see as the pandemic begins to lift, here's where you see some changes, the ADMITS, the average daily census increases for the MBU and continues on through 2021. Um, In terms of outpatient, um, I'm also affiliated with the UCSD Eating Disorder Center, Um, The green line is the number of families that called with an adolescent with eating disorder concerns and the blue line is pediatrics. You can see the same thing that the number of calls increase once some of the restrictions are uh, lifted, suggesting that potentially anxiety or other triggering events may have um, led to these increases in calls. So um, on the right hand side is my daughter. This was her first day of school as a senior. And um, I did find some data to support this, but she wanted me to remind all of you that she actually really was happier during the pandemic. She said it was so much easier for her. School was easy, it didn't take as much time and there was reductions in social pressures. Research supports some of this with belongingness and relationship with peers, um, feeling stronger to some, some adolescents, hope meaning and life satisfaction and a better feeling of community. So I got asked a number of questions about children with higher levels of anxiety. So anxiety regarding the pandemic is real. Sometimes reassuring kids sometimes can exacerbate the anxiety. Um, You want to limit kids exposure to the media, help your child feeling control through hand-washing or masks and obviously vaccinations when it's time, explain the physical effects of anxiety. So how it's a fight or flight mechanism and teach your child um deep breathing and if your child's anxiety is severe and persists and interferes with their everyday lives please reach out for help and um, there are a number of different resources available as well as on the cdc so with that i will say thank you and hand it back to dr bremer
0: that was some amazing presentations and i got enormous number of um of questions some of which you've answered you've anticipated some there's a lot of questions about vaccines for children and dosing and weight. Why, maybe it's good for Steven, why um, are not the doses adjusted by weight? There's a big difference in the weight of a child who's five versus 12.
3: Right, well, in, in general, as you've seen, the, uh, the dose that was given for those who are 12 years of age and older is um, similar, is the same dose is given to adults. Uh, After that, what actually ended up happening with a number of these vaccines was that in fact, there was a dose finding study that was performed prior to their actually going into the registrational trials. And what they found there was in fact, that very often lower doses of of the vaccine uh, were able to give an immune response in people who were less than 65 years of of age. So when it came to looking at what dose would be appropriate for younger children, what happened was the companies began to look at those in phase one, two studies, found that in fact the lower doses gave the immune response similar to that that was seen in adults and was associated with fewer adverse events and that's why they went with the lower dose.
1: I'll just add in that there are lots of vaccines that have a different dose for younger children compared to adults. And, and if you think about it, there's quite a variation in the size of adults. So, <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> and in fact, with the influenza
3: vaccine, when you're older, you get a bigger dose. So, there
0: are differences in vaccines and doses. Yeah, I thought maybe a take home message was it's not dependent on your body weight, it depends upon how you respond to the vaccine. So that's why some more senior adults require bigger, you know, antigen loads to get a better vaccine, you know, better response. Um, here's a good question. Um, what about the risk of COVID transmission in breast milk?
1: Yeah, there, I just reviewed this for a talk I gave yesterday, and there's actually no convincing evidence that, that uh, COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted in breast milk. And there is also very little evidence that it's transferred in utero through the placenta before the baby's born. So the vast majority of babies who are getting infected, and we we do see that, are getting infected after they're born. So it's important for women and families who have SARS-CoV-2 infection to be very careful around the newborn because they are more severely affected than, than older infants and older children.
0: Thank you. Here's a question that I always, doesn't seem to make sense to me either, as well as the questionnaire, Kushner. So, you know, you're wearing masks all the time and then you sit down and eat in the, in the schoolroom, and you take your mask off. There's a whole group of students eating together without masks. It, it, it doesn't seem intellectually consistent. Does anyone have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, you're was, go ahead, Stephen.
3: I was going to say, you're absolutely right, but it's hard to eat with your mask on.
1: Yes. Yeah, they, you know, in most... Facilities. The recommendation is when you take your mask off to eat, you need to distance yourself at least six feet from others. Unfortunately, in schools, that message may have gotten lost, or it may be challenging to do that given the space available.
0: When the children get here's another question. When the children get hospitalized, is there any underlying disease conditions they have, or you know, like similar to adults, where it seems like there's a very high predisposition of, you know, of underlying diseases that. Get you from mild COVID to more severe COVID.
2: The, the majority or plurality of hospitalizations are associated with comorbidity, and what the pediatric literature supports: the number one comorbidity that we, we actually see is obesity, um, as as a an increased risk factor for hospitalizations. There are other, you know, immune deficient syndromes, uh, and, and and any other underlying disease tends to make you more likely. But but obesity is the is the one thing that that. Uh, the literature continuously cites as an increased risk factor for hospitalization.
0: Thank you. Here's a question uh, um, um, for Dr. Sun. Um, someone said, if, if you're not being vaccinated yet, in other words, your child's not re- ready to be vaccinated because of the um, age limits, is there anything else they can do to, I think the term you, you use was educate their um, immune system?
4: Play in the dirt. um a to so do it. Um, just um, you know, ways to expose to low doses of uh, different um, antigens—things uh, that will present to you the, your child's immune system—to have them mount a little response, uh, a little bit at a time, uh, so that will di- diversify um, the immune cells and uh, get them ready.
0: Um, here's a good one um, for um, Carrie. It, it says that an, the children have enormous amount of. Um, anxiety, um, what should the parent do? And maybe a more tougher question is, at what point do you ask for professional help? What, when does normal anxiety extend into something that you, you need an intervention?
5: Okay. Um, so I've been asked this question a couple of times, actually. And one of the best things you can do, as I said, is talk to your child about their fears. Their fears are real. Um, parents can also educate children that sometimes anxiety feels really awful because it's a physiological response. And so, as I mentioned briefly at the end, because I was running out of time that you can teach deep breathing, um, when to refer, when to go for help, that's, that's a judgment call. But at some level, if it's affecting your child's functioning, where it seems severe and ongoing, that would be the time to call for an assessment. And it's always worth getting an assessment. And if the therapist thinks the child doesn't need help, they will certainly say so. But in general, by the time people get there, they're usually worried enough to want to have their child have someone to talk to.
0: Uh, Here's one that Steve volunteered to answer. Thank you, (laughs) Stephen. This is a a misunderstanding about how you develop vaccines and the role of um, um, cells from um, aborted fetuses. So so maybe you can clarify that, Steve.
3: Right. I think that this is really a very important question that is important to understand, that this is not true. And that these vaccines were not developed using fetal cells. They were not evaluated using fetal cells. And so um, it's very important, I saw what the question was, that uh, families that are not getting immunized because of this understand that this is one of the things that is not true and should not be preventing them from getting immunized. Thanks.
0: Thanks. I wanted to make sure everyone understood that. Then there are a whole series of questions and maybe different people can answer this about um, the relationship of a um, COVID infection to a child, whether it's asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic or severe symptomatic, and then the risk of um, long COVID or subsequent subsequent, um, um, symptoms.
1: Well, I wish we understood long COVID in anybody. It's, It's a phenomenon that looks like it's real, but defining who it happens in and why it happens, I think we're still working on that. There have been reports of that in children. There may be a psychological component that Dr. Butel can comment on, but it is certainly a concern and one of the reasons it's important to immunize kids. I would add to that. I think that long COVID is
2: absolutely real and it, the prevalence does seem to be increased in, along with disease severity. We know that MIS-C children, for instance, tend to have very long-term symptomatology. I would, I would reiterate that, that uh, the NIH is about to begin a nationwide study, which uh, UCSD is one of the long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID study groups um, in which they will be recruiting anywhere between six and 10,000 children um, uh, across the nation over the course of the next year or so, to really start answering some of those questions related to uh, pediatric long COVID. Um, they're doing it for adults as well, of course.
0: Thank you um here's a, a similar question all adults know the answer to this but what about for children what what kind of short-term side effects have children shown to vaccines tiredness headache soreness etc
3: so far children have shown the same side effects uh that adults and adolescents have have shown so just those side effects that uh, you you um I mentioned dr brenner are the ones that uh we're seeing in children.
0: To, to the same severity? I mean, because it seems like, like, or is there a big range? It seems like adults adults, is enormous range, depending upon uh, how the reaction is to, to the vaccine.
3: Yeah, Yes, and that's that's the same for children also that we've been immunizing. Uh, some have virtually no symptoms at all other than a mildly sore arm, and others have had fever that has gone up to uh, 102. Um, and have had some chills and body aches. So we've seen a a wide range, uh, but again, they usually last no more than 24 or 48 hours.
1: And I'll just reiterate that that's a major focus of the FDA review of these studies, to make sure that we're not seeing more severe side effects. So it's good news that we're not so far.
0: And I actually, Another question just addresses what Mark just raised, and maybe we can add to that, about what does the FDA look for? I mean, what, 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 what would be a cutoff that, that they, they would be concerned about not going ahead with vaccinating children?
1: Well, I mean, the fundamental equation is risk versus benefit. So you would look at the risk of hospitalization and severe outcomes, including long COVID and the psychological impacts of COVID on, on our society. And transmission to others, and then you would look at the side effect profile and, and say which is the which way you know which is the more severe. And every vaccine that we have ever used routinely in in the United States and elsewhere, when you do that analysis, you conclude that the it's better off you're better off getting the vaccine than you are getting the disease. And I'm certain that's going to be true for COVID as well. Thank you. Um. Here's a question um probably
0: probably for carrie about um peer pressure about um peer pressure not to wear a mask you know if you're if you're among your friends um and um would you have any any words of wisdom about how to deal with that
5: so I wish I had some magic for that one, and I really, honestly don't. Um, you know, it's the same as we teach children to resist any other peer pressure: is one find um, friends who are also like-minded who want to wear a mask, and secondly, support your child in feeling comfortable um, standing up to the other um, teens, and then, if necessary, get them support at school from either coaches or. Um, PE teachers or whoever can address the group. That would be my first thought.
0: I know the answer for adults, but not for children. Um, what do you do as far as um, um, COVID-19 um, testing for children? Uh, do, do we do we use the same PCR testing? Is it administered the same way? Uh, where would one get one when we wanted it? And also, this was not asked, but but I want to know the answer to this one. What what about the antigen tests you can buy in, in the pharmacy? What, what, what how, Are those approved for children
3: the testing for children is identical to that uh, as with adults the um best test as far as the uh, best accuracy as far as false positives and false negatives uh, is the pcr test the antigen test uh, although a very good test is uh more likely to give you um false negatives, and may also, depending on who's doing it and the interpretation, uh, has also given some false positives. Testing can be done at many of the same places where uh, adults are being tested, and uh, children can also be tested, of course, at Rady Children's Hospital.
1: I'll add to that that testing is also happening in some schools. Some schools are using testing as a way to, to keep, you know, things in check and to identify a problem early on.
0: Initially, I've heard less about this recently, but initially there's a lot of worry about what they call MIS in children. Um, uh, and can someone define what that is? And, and, and where does that fit into the spectrum of, of um, COVID-19 disease? Sounds like Kellen
3: should
2: know the answer. Um, <laughs> okay. so, I don't know why. I have a feeling Kellen knows the answer. No, so I'm I am i am not an MIS specialist, but but MIS stands for uh, multi-system inflam uh, multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome. Yes. Um, in children or MIS, um, and, and as I mentioned in my one slide, it does affect uh, for the the acutely sick kids. It does affect up to twenty percent of those. Um, that that require uh, ICU hospitalization and things along those lines. I know that that at Rady Children's Hospital with our UCSD group, um, they are actively following approximately seventy of those children um, longitudinally to find out as much information as we can about them. Um, so, so, so there clearly is an active group that 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 is is uh, looking at them both from a clinical care perspective um, as well as from a research perspective. What what at what point do you you know, does a parent
0: test his child for, for COVID-19? I mean, when they have sniffles, when they're coughing,
1: it, what would trigger you to do this? Well, it's tricky because the symptoms yeah. of COVID in children can be very mild. There are kids can have no symptoms at all, but in general, the symptoms are the same as they are in adults. Coughing is one symptom, fever, not feeling well, but kids also get diarrhea. So. I think you know certainly if you suspect or know your child's been exposed in the family, or or if you hear about an outbreak in school and they get symptoms like that, then that's a good time to test them. But if testing or no testing, you definitely want to keep your kids home while they're sick so that you don't spread further infection.
0: Here's a like the question only almost the opposite of what I asked you first. Is is um, assuming that 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 the mom is. Um, is vaccinated is breastfeeding protective um for for, um the um the infant
3: well there is evidence that uh, for all igg antibodies that that they do pass into breast milk and so um conceivably those antibodies would be helpful as well as um just the immunologic benefits of breastfeeding. Uh, However, as children get older, and if we do have a vaccine that's available for uh, those uh, children who are six months of age or older, those children uh, should be immunized, because one of the things that also is very helpful is the passive antibody from a mother who's been immunized either prior to her pregnancy or during pregnancy, Uh, that the passive antibody goes to the infant and can be helpful and uh, protective in young infants. But as they get older, they lose that antibody. Um, Breast milk antibody may be of some help, but again, you'll wanna get those infants immunized once there's an available vaccine.
0: Right, but for now, is there any, um, if you breastfeed for six months, you breastfeed for a year, it, it, it does he, Do you get continuous benefit from the vaccinated mom, or does that decrease?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think that there are data on that. Okay. But I think based on breastfeeding that um, it could certainly be helpful and would not be harmful. Okay. But I don't think we have sufficient data to say that it would be pr- protective.
0: And then th- this is the same question that always comes up for adults. Um, if you had COVID and you know and, and, uh, and now you recovered, how does that immunity compare to a
3: vaccination immunity? Do we know that? Well, we don't have as much data in children as there are in adults. Uh, however, the expectation would be that it's very similar that you do um, make immunity to the variant that you have been exposed to there still is a big question as to how long that immunity lasts with natural infection. Um, And one of the things that's been seen in adults that I think is important that has not yet been studied in children, but uh, something that will be important is for adults is once an adult has been infected, when they receive a single dose of one of the mRNA vaccines, that they respond extremely well and seem to have a great deal of protection after just a single dose of the vaccine.
1: Right. And I'd just like to reiterate that that is the recommendation. Even if you know you've had COVID, you should still get vaccinated after a period of time to, to really boost your immunity. Yeah. I, I and, I'm,
0: and for adults, you know, I know, you know, it's 90 days after the infection, and they recommend, You get it, and you get a good response. Um, Then there are questions. Oh, here's a good one for Kellen. Um, Does asthma play a role in infectivity or severity of of COVID nineteen?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, As it turns out, he knows uh, the answer to
0: it. He's all happy. No,
2: no, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually kind of a complex question. we've actually seen a dramatic decrease in asthma overall, um, but I, I, you know, most of us are conjecturing that it's the COVID environment more so than the COVID asthma relationship per se, um, in terms of de- decreased asthma. Although kids with asthma actually do not t- seem to get uh, any, uh, at least in those studies that have looked at it, at any significantly sicker than kids without asthma who get COVID. Um, So from that perspective, uh, there there have been no specific studies on transmissibility with or without asthma that I am aware of, but just from an overall sickness perspective per se, it doesn't appear that asthma significantly interacts with COVID along those lines.
0: Thank you. Um, And and then there are questions about all the other drugs that, not that many, but that have been used in adults where they fit into children. For example... um, you know, monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, uh, um, you know, other other interventions. Um, um, I don't know about in, in, in the ICU, but certainly in, in the medical ICU, use of glucocorticoids or other interventions. So, so where does that fit in the armamentarium to taking care of um, ill children?
1: Well, all of those things are being used in children. Uh, we don't have as much experience as with adults, because not as many kids are in the hospital. But Certainly, we're using the monoclonal antibodies, both as prevention, as part of therapy after infection. So, uh, you know, we're continuing to study those, and those are turning out to be a very important part of the equation. Child-to-child transmission,
0: you know, because I guess that's one of the, a lot of questions sort of related to that, because the concern of going back to school. Is that, I mean, do children have the same viral load as adults? Is the ability to transmit similarly, or are they messier than adults who are likely to, to transmit. Uh, so, so there's a lot of questions about that, about concerned parents.
3: Well, there are certainly now are sufficient data to demonstrate that there are that, um, situations in which there is child-to-child transmission. There also has been teacher-to-student transmission that, that has occurred, um, and again, The uh, viral load with the Delta virus strain um, is a thousand fold greater than what was seen with the original virus. And so that um, regardless of whether or not children have the equivalent viral load to adults, um, there certainly is sufficient virus when they are infected to transmit to their friends uh, and potentially to their teachers, parents, and grandparents.
0: And and um, reiterating the point that Shin made um, earlier in our lecture that um, they have lower ACE2 um, receptor and therefore might be more resistant to infection. Has that clinically borne out as far as, you know, know, child-to-child transmission?
3: I don't know of any data that has actually systematically looked at that. I think that that's an interesting question. Um, But, again, the amount of virus that children have is certainly sufficient for transmission.
0: Right. Um, We are out of time. But this is, as you can tell, this is incredibly well received and a lot of great questions. And you guys are just fantastic. You should take this on the road. This is really, really amazing. Thank you so much.